John Douglas was very meticulous in his profile, but he cautioned those of the Green River Task Force to keep his ideations of what the killer's behavior is based off of in the investigation information he was provided as a close, guarded secret. Otherwise, tips from the public could be skewed as well-meaning people begin to tailor their information to meet that of the investigator's expectations, or worse, the killer could read about their own behavior and attempt to change it in order to further confuse investigators. Caution was given with the profile to not let this be their Hail Mary play in the investigation. His evaluation of the behavior of the suspect they are looking for is nothing more than a tool to help the investigation. No suspect should be disregarded because he wasn't tailored to the analysis. Douglas's analysis would not be made public until years later when authors managed to get their hands on it and use it in comparison of Gary Ridgway. His analysis would further evaluate this. Their ages and race show a variance which indicates that the offender demonstrated no personal preference for race. It has been determined through the studies of the Behavioral Science Unit that even the best of the so-called street people can be tricked or fooled, and a frequent repeated tactic observed is when the offender impersonates a member of law enforcement. During his contact with the victim, her safety will be the prime entry. He will use and he may even promise to take the victim home or to the police station. He may also admonish the victim for walking the streets in the evening hours or for solicitating sexual favors. The offender's biggest obstacle will be to gain control of the victim and while the victim will initially be willing to go with him for the solicited act of prostitution, at some point he will demonstrate power over the victim. While in this particular case, the victims are of different ages and race, including variances in modus operandi. The assumption is still made that all the deaths are related and all are committed by the same individual. This is based on the location where the victims were initially confronted, that being the Pacific Highway South or Stroll area near the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport in the location of the disposal of the bodies, also due to the probable cause of death being strangulation asphyxia. All of the victims are categorized in this matter as high-risk victims due to their involvement with drugs and prostitution, their lifestyles, which make them susceptible to be a victim of a violent crime. In other words, they are characterized as victims of opportunity. They are easy to approach on the street and probably initiate the conversation with their prospective Johns. An analysis of the crime scene reflects a primary focal point being the disposal site for the offender. In the case of the Green River victims, namely Bonner, Chapman, Cofield, Hines, and Mills, the offender dumped his victims in or near the Green River. Crime scene analysis further reflects the offender was comfortable with the crime scene, where some of his victims were anchored down with rocks. His efforts to secure the victims to the bottom of the river by placing rocks on top of them demonstrates the fact that he spent a considerable period of time in or at this location. 
The other body, Mills, that was dumped on the side of the Green River is evidence that the offender had to quickly dispose of his victim. The method of disposing of the victim indicates the offender does not or will not demonstrate any remorse over the death of his victims. What the offender is telling police is that the deaths of these victims are warranted and justified, and he is even providing, in his own mind, a service to mankind. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we carry on with the case of the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. John Douglas was more than willing to help out the Green River Task Force, as body after body of missing sex workers kept popping up. The fear is how many are there that have yet to be discovered. Gary would work in a way of what I would call cluster kill. We would see two to four victims go missing within 10-day periods. A few turned up in the Green River, but it was becoming increasingly risky to keep returning to the murky waters to hide his dirty little secret. No, no. Instead, he would have to make do for now. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sex, murder, and adult language. Listeners, discretion is advised. If you feel like any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I hope you all have had a chance to listen to last week's episode kicking off the season's series finale. But remember, we have several more weeks of this case to cover before we actually take a break for the Christmas holiday. We have the usual housekeeping to take care of tonight. I want to remind you all that you can head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and make a contribution to the show. No matter how small or how large, it all goes a long way to help keep a show like TTCL up and running. Don't forget, as you are perusing your social media this holiday season and people are looking and asking for recommendations on shows to tune into for their long drives to visit family or from coming home from visiting family, take a second or two to recommend the True Crime Librarian to them to help get them through their commutes. Even leaving recommendations or reviews will continue to help the show grow and those algorithms to recommend TTCL by whatever podcast platform you're on. 
If you're joining me on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and check the bell so that you never miss an upload. Before leaving at the end, do not forget to hit the like button on the video. Again, this just helps the algorithms to recommend me to other nerds like you. And a little disclaimer tonight, if you can't tell, I'm a little nasally. I have a little bit of a cold. So if during my editing, I'm in a medicated induced fog and I don't take out a cough or a sip or something, just bear with me. It's going to be a long, long Thanksgiving. I'm going on a week of this head cold <laughs> and it seems to have just gotten worse since on Saturday and into Sunday and here I am recording and it's taking everything I have not to cough. So just that disclaimer as we get into tonight's episode, but enough of all of that, let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week I introduced you to the man who escaped detectives for nearly 30 years. He was right there under their nose. The Green River Killer Task Force was put together on August 16th of 1982 in an effort to find the man dumping the city's sex workers into the water of the Green River. His killing spree clustered together in the latter part of the summer in 82, and still no one could identify him even after seven victims were reported missing. The task force was scrambling to catch up to him, but when they were working with individuals who commit a crime each day that they go to work, you find it difficult for them to be forthcoming about their activity and who frequented the strip. One of these men were hunting these women down in packs. But turning over even one John could end the way they have to make a living. So, do you take your chance and earn the money to keep yourself alive until tomorrow, knowing that any one of the men who stop and take interest in you could be the one that could take your very existence? Or, do you succumb to whatever drove you to sell yourself for sex and move on from the only thing you know how to do and the only way you know how to survive. Let me hop up on my soapbox real quick. And let me throw this out here. Before I get any further into this case. Because this popped up last week. Later part of last week after the first episode. And I'm not going to name names. That's not who I am. Y'all know I'm not. I will however address this. Because I feel like. Hmm. I'm no better than any of y'all, and y'all are no better than me. In the world of true crime, you learn that it isn't about the black and white, the right or wrong. It is the gray areas that make or break the case. Although I dig deep and provide you with the good, the bad, and the ugly, it doesn't mean that any of these victims deserved the fate they suffered. They made choices. Sometimes those choices do not line up with your beliefs and in your eyes. They were poor choices, but they are still a person who suffered tremendously, including these women that I am introducing you to in this case. All 49 of them were women. They were mothers. They were sisters. They were daughters. They were a person. None. Not one deserved to die while some man with power issues and a sexual desire he couldn't control 
stole every last moment they had with his hands. So while I welcome all of my nerds, even those of you who are tuning in today for the first time, to interact with me, to ask me questions, to push me out of my comfort zone and make me look at this case at a different angle, I will not tolerate anyone blaming the victim for the fate that they suffered. I'm proud that you never reached a point that the only option you had was to sell your body. I'm proud of these women that they didn't give up. They continued fighting every day regardless of why they were in that profession. You don't like what they did. Great. Keep those two cents. You may find yourself needing it one day. If you think the world needs to know that their chosen path in life is wrong, well, let me educate you. That's between them and their creator. The moment you blame them saying they deserved what they got because they were drug addicts or because they were prostitutes, well, that's the moment you must answer to yours. Not to mention you may have just welcomed into your life something that could bring you crashing down to hit that low in life. And when you're standing there on the corner hoping someone will pay you $20 for a blowjob, I hope that the person who wants to cause harm to you as it comes to blow with their higher power and withstands the desire to snuff you out and you go home with your life. I will delete comments like this from all platforms. Not going to tolerate this. We're not victim blamers. We all come to this to learn what it, it is that makes a person switch gears and becomes a serial killer who kills in the throw of passion who harms their child, whatever the case topic is, we're here to learn the psychology of it because that's what it boils down to. What made them snap and do that? We're not here to blame the victim. These women were murdered before they had a shot to show anyone that they were capable of something different. The difference between you and them, though, is they would have had your back on the street. You... Well, you'd turn your nose up and leave them gagging in the trail of your overpriced perfume. Okay, now I'm going to get down off my soapbox and we're going to continue on with this story and the women and what it took to actually bring the man responsible to justice, even if it was decades later. Let me introduce you to Mary Bridget Mahan. Mary was born May 16, 1964. She was adopted later by her parents and the Meehans. Mary as a child had this instinct to take care of things. She would routinely bring home stray cats and try to hide them in her room. But when the whole house would erupt with sneezing and coughing and watery eyes, off to her room they would go and there would be a new stray cat. She would have to turn these cats loose because her parents are like, look what it's doing to everybody. Everybody's getting sick. They can't stay here. So she would have to go out and eventually turn these cats loose. But it wouldn't be a day or more before she would attempt it again with another cat. Her parents tried to combat this or compromise with her by getting her a parrot. And while Mary did love her parrot, she still wanted to bring home the strays and try to take care of them. Mary had a hearing misconception 
that would cause her academic career to be challenging. But where she would lack in that education in the, in the field of math and reading and, and writing, she made up for with her creativity. And still to this day, the family uses her artwork, whether it pops up around the house during the holidays or they scan it and use it as the photo for their Christmas cards. Whatever it is, they still keep Mary alive in their home. When Mary got into junior high, she found something even more interesting than art and cats. Boys. Possibly another thing that she viewed as a, something to take care of in life. Her personality leading to her choosing her boyfriends over studies and her home life led her parents handing her a very strong ultimatum in my eyes. The ultimatum was either she come home by curfew and she takes care of the responsibilities that she has with her schoolwork or she can get out. But Mary loved to kind of test that line, only this was the one you didn't try to cross. She came home late frequently and she would find herself locked out of her own home. This left her to sleeping outside and there was a couple times she risked hyperthermia and frostbite because she wouldn't come home on time and they wouldn't let her in the house. Mary was stubborn, but so was her parents. And although she couldn't believe that her parents would go that far, she never tried to make any effort to be home by curfew. If she was late, well, she slept outside that night. It didn't bother her until she finally decided, you know, why do I have to sleep outside when I can go and stay at my boyfriend's house? And that's what she would do. And this worked for a while until the very young 15-year-old girl found herself pregnant. The boyfriend she's staying with, he's not excited about this new newest addition. And he went to her about possibly having an abortion. But Mary was raised Catholic and she was very strong within her faith. She would not be having an abortion. Unfortunately, though, she would miscarry soon after learning about the baby. Then Mary became pregnant for a second time. And again, she wasn't even 16 yet. And again, the boyfriend wasn't excited. And again, Mary's faith came to play and an abortion wasn't the option. However, this time her boyfriend did take a page from her parents' book and issued uh, the same ultimatum. Either have an abortion or get out. So Mary moved to a friend's house because in her mind, she was having this baby. But unfortunately, I think the stress of how she was going to raise it, what she was going to do without the father being in the baby's life... This, that, and the other, I think that all pressured came down and it just really wreaked havoc on her body and caused her to miscarry the second child as well. Slowly, the life of couch surfing and shelter surfing was getting to Mary and she wanted to be able to do more, but without her education due to her dropping out, it prevented her from holding down a really good job and it proved 
to Mary that life was more difficult than she thought it was when she was at home under the care of her parents. Then one day a man propositioned her for a blowjob for 20 bucks. She agreed, even though she never had done anything like this for money. In the end, the men, the man just ended up buying her a burger and they sat and talked and she backed out of the deal. However, this was the moment that she began to entertain the idea of selling herself for money. Well, I'd like to say eventually she got her shit together, but she really didn't. Eventually, Mary was able to collect herself enough that she was welcomed back home to her parents' home. And she went to continuation school where she was going to work to get her GED. She realized that, you know, maybe the adults are right. Maybe I do need my education in order to have a good job. So let's start with the GED. And that's what she was working towards until a man that she met at the continuation school, her, they got together and by Christmas she was having their baby. This guy was a real piece of shit. He liked to use her as a punching bag or a ticket to his next score throughout her entire pregnancy. And much like the cat situation, she wanted this baby, but had to admit she didn't have the means to actually take care of the child. And her family wanted to take the child on. But I think there was, I think when it came down to this, I think in their mind, instead of them adopting Mary's child, that if outsider family came in and adopted the child, it would make it easier on Mary and everybody. And it would push Mary to get better so that the next time she became pregnant, she could actually keep the child. I don't, I'm not really sure what their reasoning is. And, it, and the more I try to dive into it, the more I don't understand it. But um, whatever the case came to be, the family sat with Mary when she welcomed her newborn infant that she named Stephen. They all got to know him. They all memorized his face. And then he was taken away to his new family. And Mary was left to tell people that the baby died shortly after it was born. However, we know it went to another family. Now, her parents say that not long afterwards, they saw um, a photograph in the paper with an article about a family who loved to take in children. And there sitting on the mother's lap was baby Stephen. And so they knew he was adopted into a good life. And that was a good thing for them. But Mary didn't really learn anything. And within six weeks to about eight weeks, she was pregnant again. And again, it belonged to that piece of crap. But come September 15th of 1982, Mary had stopped by the motel she and her baby daddy were staying at. And she did something real quick and, and left again. Afterwards, nobody would ever see her alive after that. Whether her intent was to walk the street for some extra cash or she was on her way somewhere, we will never know. But she did end up in a truck with Gary. The two agreed upon a date. And once in the area for their date, Mary decided she didn't want to 
have vaginal intercourse with him due to her pregnancy, but that she would go ahead and give him oral. Here's the thing that kind of baffles me. She was seven months pregnant when Gary picked her up. When you hear him talk about Mary later in his interviews that were part of his plea deal, he did not realize she was that far along. Now, the boyfriend or the baby daddy or the piece of crap, whatever you want to call him, gave, you know, his own recount of the whole thing. He said that even though Mary was seven months along, it was really hard to tell. And it was very easy for her to hide it from her johns. So, mm, I guess she was not like some women who just pop. Maybe she held it tighter. I'm, I don't know. With the amount of pregnancies she had in such a short period of time, I she was blessed with good genes is the only thing I can think of because that is baby number four. She should be showing quite a bit by now, but she wasn't. Well, her changing up the date with Gary pissed him off. And he he wasn't paying for the mouth. He was paying for the vagina is what he keeps saying. But he let her go ahead and, and try to give him oral. And he was having a hard time coming to attention. And this pissed him off even more. So he ends up somehow getting behind her. And he puts her in like a chokehold kind of thing. If you watch MMA, he kind of used their technique or what I would suspect is their technique. He wrapped his legs around her body and used his arm to pull back as he killed her. This is the way he did so. But instead of tossing her into the Green River like he had done with all the victims prior, he decided, I'm going to bury her right here where she's at. So he gets a shovel out of his truck and he digs a very shallow grave. Mary would become his first buried victim and she was only buried about 18 inches below the surface. He undressed her. He laid her in the grave, slightly on her side, but looking up to the sky before he covered her with dirt and sod. Then he took her clothes and jewelry and he got the hell out of there. Now, like I said, he didn't realize she was pregnant. He undressed her. So I would say that if she was just wearing baggy clothing at that point, he would learn that she was pregnant. But there's also that adrenaline rush, right? You can imagine Think about like when you were a kid and you would go sneak like food or do, you know, you were doing something you knew you shouldn't have been doing. Think about that rush of adrenaline you would get hoping, you know, when's my mom and dad going to come in kind of thing. I can say that I feel like that's what it would feel like if you were Gary Ridgway in this moment, only amplified by like a hundred thousand percent, right? So Maybe because he was so just riding that high of adrenaline, he didn't realize she was pregnant or I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe he saw it and just didn't register it into his memory. I don't know. Either way, he claims he didn't know that she was pregnant. 
Okay, so our next victim up is victim number nine, Deborah Lorian Estes. She was born September 12th, 1967, and she was barely 15 years old when she would fall victim to the Green River Killer. Deborah was known to never really take anything too seriously. Her family said, quote, life was a game to Deborah, and she went where the wind would blow her. There wasn't too much about her except she was very good at misleading her actual age. At the age of 10, she lied to a Planned Parenthood clinic claiming to be 14 and was able to obtain birth control. She was 10 years old. I'm not even sure she needed it just yet, but whatever. In Washington at the time, I'm not familiar with Washington state law because I'm not from there. Um, at the time, they didn't have to notify a parent or a guardian that the minor was getting contraceptive. And so she was able to obtain this. And a few years later, she would move out of her home with her family and in with her friend named Becky Marrero. And this was because Becky found herself needing a place to stay. And so Deborah went to her mother and asked, you know, can my friend Becky move in? And her mother was like, no, I don't think so. She's a little too young to be, you know, not living at home. Well, this kind of pissed Becky off and she decided, fine, Becky's moving out. I'm moving out. And together they went in and they were living together. This would occur about the latter part of the summer in 82. Now, September 1982, Deborah went to King County deputies to report that she had been hitchhiking, which was her primary way of traveling on the highway when a man in a white pickup opened his truck door and agreed to take her to the SeaTac Mall, which is where she was wanting to go. However, the man decided, mm, we're going to take a little detour. And instead, he took her down a lonely road where he made Deborah perform oral sex on him, followed by him raping her. When she filed this report, she filed it under her street name, Betty, which makes it a little bit harder when investigators are looking at things because you're not looking first of all most girls didn't either tell you their real name or they didn't tell you their street name which means making that connection was quite difficult the other thing is she was a minor and this again made it difficult however detectives were able to nail down a suspect they believe that was the man who assaulted deborah and they went and picked her up from the motel she was staying at and took her down to the station. And she picked out the man who they believed was the suspect. She picked him out of what's called a laydown of mugshots. And I think that's where, like on TV, you see him lay out six, ten mugshots. And you're asked to pick which one it was. Well, the man they were tracking was the man that she picked out of the lineup. It was not Gary Ridgway, just FYI. Well, they take her back to the motel and they, you know, they ask her, you know, we're going to press charges. And she's like, yes, let's press charges. Um, let's go forward with this. She was going to do it. They had, a, you know, she was their key witness. And then their key witness was gone. 
Determining whether Deborah was actually missing or had just run off to the next big thing became very difficult for everyone who knew her to really sift out. She was eventually added to the missing persons list. Um, She went missing on September 20th, 1982, not long after she had made the file. She was added to their list of missing people, but she went on the list of missing persons as Deborah Estes. The name she used when trying, when reporting her assault was Betty. So that connection was not made immediately on. The, t- the investigators just thought, you know, our key witness is up and gone. Happens quite a bit with people in her profession. But nevertheless, the connection was not made just yet. Now, here's another thing that's kind of eerily weird about this situation with Deborah. She went missing September 20th, 1982. On December 2nd of 1982, someone registered at the Western Six Motel, which was in that geographical area that the GRK liked to hunt, and it was frequented by some of the victims. Someone registered under her name. At this point, she'd been missing for two and a half months. May adding her name to the list of potential GRK victims was difficult because of something like this. Obvious somebody used her identity and was able to obtain a hotel room without really telling anybody who they were. And this is probably because they were using it to bring Johns back to. But it made it difficult for investigators because, you know. How did she get a hotel room two and a half months after you say she went missing? Well, she didn't. And so they thought, well, can't really add her to the list of victims because we don't have a body. So we, we're we just going to wait till either she turns up alive and well and is like, oh, hey, I, I went and did this for a while. Or we wait until her body is discovered. That would take some time, and in the meantime, Gary Ridgway would pick up victim number 10, Linda Jane Rule. Now, for those of you who are, you know, hardcore true crime nerds, she's not related to the Anne Rule family, to Anne Rule, or in any way is she related to that family, which is weird because Anne does talk about Linda in her book, Green River Running Red. She doesn't make any mention of any family connection there or anything, but I'm just saying there's not a connection. But your ears perked up when I said rule, right? Well, they did for me too. She was born March 20th, 1966. She was just 16 years old when she would go missing. She went missing wearing pinstripe blue jeans and a nylon black jacket. She was on her way out to go to the local Kmart where she was planning to go shopping for some clothes. Linda was much like the girls and women who had gone missing before her. She was young. She had dropped out of school, finding the need to be free greater than the need to prepare oneself for succeeding in that seemingly free world, which all of us as an adult are laughing because it's not free. You know, when you're a kid, you look at it and you're like, hell yeah, I'm being an adult and I'm going to get to make my own decision. As an adult, you're like, I wish I was a kid so I didn't have to make these decisions. 
<laughs> you always want what you can't have. However, with Linda, once she dropped out and, you know, was like, I'm going to take the world and make it mine, she she eventually ended up turning to drugs. Mostly she was smoking marijuana, which if you're from a state who has legalized it in one form or another, you don't really view it as a drug. However, during this time, it was considered a Schedule 1 drug. I think it is still federally Schedule 1. But she also was taking Ritalin, which in the 1980s, Ritalin was not being prescribed for what you know it to be prescribed for, which is ADHD. Ritalin is a form of speed, essentially. But when you give something like that to a person who has ADHD, it has the opposite effect. It it allows them to be able to concentrate. It allows them to be functioning. Uh, whereas before their mind has 72 different tabs open, but you don't know which one the music's coming from, that kind of thing. So for people who have that, having medicine like this helps bring them down and level them out. But for somebody like Linda, it is very much a form of speed and it's probably much cheaper than some of the other relatable drugs on the street. I don't know. Wasn't wasn't alive in 82. She used it all as a way to numb the senses because, you know, adult life was just not what she thought it was going to be. Well, sex work gave her a means to get through the day with some money and some drugs. So she would go out, she would work the Aurora Strip close to the Northwest Hospital in Seattle. I didn't pronounce that right, Aurora. I know that. It's cool. Just keep going. Okay. This was a place that she frequently took dates to and so did other workers because at the time it was just an open field. However, right now it's a parking lot. Gary Ridgway was in the area the night of September 26, 1982. We know this because he withdrew $50 from an ATM in that area And then now I've got a bunch of you screaming going, the ATMs weren't there. Yeah, they were. I had to look it up because even I was looking. (laughs) I'm staring currently at all of the information that came from the interviews during Gary Ridgway's plea deal. It's all been made public. So I printed the entire thing off. It's like 150 pages. You figure it'd be more because Chris Watts was 2,000 pages. It was quite difficult. But when I saw this, I was like, ATM, bullcrap, right? Pulled it up. First ATM was actually installed in Manhattan, New York in 1969. So, the more you know. Anyway, so we could track him to being in that area from that ATM transaction. Linda Roll would not be included on the list of potential Green River killings, even though her disappearance and murder match that of the modus operandi, of the victim profile, of the way she was found, this, that, and the other. She matched it, but because her location was not near the Green River, where we've known him to dump bodies, she was not added to the list until much later. And in 2003, Gary was able to 
recall the date with Linda and when they took him out to where the, the general area was where she was found, which is now a parking lot, that confused him a little bit, but he was able to get within like 150 yards of where her body was. It's things like this that really throw you. And that's the reason I continue on with John Douglas's profile of the Green River Killer. Because if you'll remember, last week he said there could be possibly more than one person. Well, as he goes through and revises this, as the investigation goes on, he determines it's not multiple people. This is one person doing it. However, they were instructed not to discriminate against those who didn't fit the analysis to a T. And this is why. The area around the Green River was a hot spot for investigators and detectives and street cops that were out on the beat. This, I mean, all eyes were on this river because this is where we've had seven bodies pop up. Like this, he's found his favorite place, right? No, mm -mm. that became a, a no-go spot for him because of all of that heat. And so he had to resort to disposing of these bodies in a different location and in a different manner. For the most part, he's very ritualistic in how he disposes of the body. He gets rid of the clothing, he takes jewelry, and he leaves them, for the most part, completely naked. If he used some form of a garrote or their clothing in order to strangle them, that would be left behind, generally because he said it was too tight to try and get it off. So, we are still seeing this pattern, but if you notice, it did not fit the profile to a T, right? And that's where that caution came in that, that John was like, do not use this as the only form of investigation. This is simply a tool amongst many for you to be using. And this is why he changed it up. But the only thing he really changed up was the location of the disposal. He still hunted on the strip. He was still taking young girls. He was still strangling them. The only thing changing was this little bitty part. But first, I, I, in my mind, in the way I'm reading this and the way I'm kind of understanding it, they kind of zoned in on that analysis and it took them a minute to break that habit of following it completely verbatim. You know what I'm saying? I think that because it was such a new tool and the premise behind the development of it where John Douglas had, you know, traveled the country talking to other serial killers and learning their behavior patterns, I think they were hoping this was, you know, a solid guaranteed thing. And it's not. It's not. None of what the BAU did was guaranteed. What it did give investigators like the Green River Task Force was a tool to help them figure out where they should be looking as far as suspects go. In Seattle, Tacoma, Kent, in that area, you have one you have the most populated area in Washington State. Determining which of the many men walking down the street is your killer is quite difficult. But if you can watch the way that they act, the way they carry themselves, the that 
can help you eliminate some people. If they can pinpoint down an age range for you, that helps you eliminate even more. You know, it's just, I think that's what's wrong with this case is because they were using something new. And because Gary was so normal, so ordinary, he was able to go undetected. Even though he was right there under their nose the whole damn time. Right? So, but we're looking at new disposal sites now with this new, with this new cluster. Victim number 11, Denise Darcel Bush. Denise was born June 10th, 1960. She's originally from Portland, Oregon, but from time to time she would travel to Seattle for work. Sex workers in Oregon were a little timid by what was going on in the very close state of Washington and in the Seattle area, which from where Denise was at in Portland was about a three and a half hour drive, so it wasn't too far. It is possible that whoever was committing the murders up in Seattle would be able to travel to Oregon and find a whole new group of victims to hunt from. But for the most part, because it was all happening in Seattle and it didn't seem as though he had traveled outside of the area, the alarm levels in Portland were not as high. But the money that could be made in Seattle was far better. And for some women, that possibility was alluring. And if it came with that risk, depending on what you needed the money for or what your drive was, the risk was worth it. And for Denise, it was. She went up to Seattle and she was staying in the Moonrise Motel in Seattle with an acquaintance. And this is within that hunting ground <clears throat> of Gary Ridgeway. And it puts her in that high-risk area, okay? So she's staying with a friend at this hotel. She goes to her room and on October 7th, she runs down close to the motel to the 7-Eleven up the road. And she's waiting there for her friend. And when her friend arrives, she later tells investigators that there was a man that had his hood up on his GMC pickup. She described it as being a dirty, dull green color with oxidized paint. She remembers him, and the reason he stuck out to her was because when she looked over while talking with Denise, he suddenly, like, ducked his head below the hood so you couldn't see his face anymore. It was like he didn't want to be seen, but he wanted to know what was going on. And she found that odd, and she even mentioned it to Denise, and Denise kind of blew her off and was like, oh, you know... I'm going to meet up with him later tonight. No big deal. Here's the thing. That truck doesn't match the description for Gary Ridgway's truck. However, it does match the description for his brother's pickup. It was a turquoise color. On October 8th of 1982, Gary was off work. He said he had like an eye ailment, whether it be pink eye or whatever. He didn't go to work that day. He was in the area of the Moonrise Motel where he purchased $26 worth of gasoline and Denise 
was last seen alive on October 8th of 1982. Here's a thing that really kind of stuck out about Denise. There's not a whole lot known about her early life. And unfortunately, like I said in the last episode, because of their profession, it limited what they shared about themselves. And if they didn't really have a family, if they had a horrible home life when they were growing up, there was nobody there looking for them, really. And so there was no one there to tell the story. But there was something different about Denise that would later help identify her remains. She suffered from epileptic seizures. They were mostly controlled with medication, but at one point she had to have a shunt placed inside of her skull to drain some excess cerebral fluid off of the brain, and this helped with the pressure levels and could ultimately further decrease the occurrence of the seizure. So it was really something to help control this. And for Denise, it worked really well and would later prove to be a aid in her murder. Like I said, there's not much known about Denise. I don't know, you know, when she arrived in Seattle. I don't know how frequent she went to Seattle because she wasn't a regular on the strip and her profession, well, it didn't allow you to share too much. The friend was the one who reported her missing and that is the extent of Denise's story. And it, it saddens me when I come across a victim and I don't have something to tell you about. I don't have an anecdote about who they were prior to being killed. I don't have a history to help you understand what drove them to walking up and down the strip to make money. I hate that there's no one left to really miss them. And let me introduce you to Shonda Leah Summers. Shonda was born sometime during the year of 1965. Her birth date has never been pinpointed even on her headstone. It just gives you 1965. As with her death, there is a rough estimate, but the true date is unknown. Shonda was last seen on the night that Denise disappeared or the following day, so either October 8th or October 9th. Reports are not clear, but as with most, Shonda was known to work the strip. And the only reason anybody knew she was missing is because her stepfather reported her missing, but it took him nearly a month to realize that she was missing. The possibility that she moved on to something better or found better turf was always there because sometimes the workers would float to where the demand was high and the pay could be greater. So that's always that possibility. Are they missing or did they just take and pick up and move the location of their profession? You know, you never know. And sadly, it took a month before somebody realized she wasn't around. Our next victim is Shirley Marie Shereel. She was born January 16, 1964. 
Shirley was another one who worked the strip in Seattle in what is known as the camp in Portland, Oregon. She would travel back and forth between the two. Shirley was last seen in Chinatown in down in the Seattle International District. Her pimp had dropped her off to go and have, you know, a lunch date with some of her friends. However, his memory is not great and he could not pinpoint an exact date. It was either October 20th or October 22nd. Her official date of death was listed as October 20th, 1982. So I would venture to guess that's the last day she was seen alive with her friends down in, you know, the international district having lunch. Someone would later say that she saw Shirley talking to two white men in a black pickup that was, quote, possibly a Ford, end quote. This is the last time she saw her because she herself got picked up for a date. And when she returned, Shirley was gone. Victim number four, Rebecca Becky Marrero. She was really good friends with Deborah Estes towards the end of both of their lives. Remember, I told you that Deborah ended up moving out of her home because her mother wouldn't allow Becky to move in with them. This is Becky. The two often worked the strip together. They often kind of took care of me, watched each other's backs. Becky was last seen dropping off her three-year-old daughter with her grandmother. There was often conversation between Becky and Becky's mother about what was being best or what could be done that would be best for her daughter. Sometimes she would agree that her mother needed to take custody and others she couldn't fathom giving her own daughter to her mother to raise. Nevertheless, Becky still had custody and was still taking care of her daughter on the day she disappeared. And on December 3rd, she called up her grandmother and asked her to watch her daughter for a few hours as she went out. Becky was never seen alive again after she walked out of her grandmother's house. Becky's mother believed she was going to go out that day to make some money for Christmas. But what really strikes me as odd about this whole thing, because like I said, Becky and her mom, they discussed her mother taking custody of the granddaughter, Becky's daughter, because there's a possibility she could provide a better life. Yet Becky still had custody. Well, when she turned to her grandmother for uh, babysitting her daughter, when Becky didn't re return, Becky's mother went over and picked up her granddaughter and she just assumed custody. Becky was not reported missing until July 20th of 1984, nearly two years after the day she was last seen alive. Much like with Deborah, there were a couple reported sightings. As a matter of fact, Deborah, at one point, was signed into the visitor log to Becky's room following the disappearance of both girls. So, as I say that, you know, the investigation had this tool that they relied too heavily on, in the same breath, you have shit like this. It's happening. You can't control it. You can't figure out why. Are they really showing up? 
is, you know, Barbara Sue using Deborah's name. What is going on? It makes it difficult and only provides further coverage for Gary in getting away with his murder when you have crap like this that it happens. Now, I told you that most of these women either had told people their real name or they told people their street name, but very rarely did they tell them both. When you have crap like this going on, it's really hard to decipher what is and what isn't, making this investigation even harder. <sighs> Pisses me off. There's not much more known about Becky. Her family wasn't very forthcoming about who she was prior. It was almost as if she was a disgrace as being a sex worker. And once, you know, Becky's mother got custody of the granddaughter, well, shit's over. She won. There are mothers out there that act like that. <sighs> Moving on. Let me introduce you to victim number 15. Colleen Renee Brockman. She was born in 1967. We do not have an exact birth date for her, but we do know she was 15 when she was last seen alive. She was described as a plump, plain girl. She never really stood out in a crowd. Colleen had been living with her father and her brother near Lake Washington Ship Canal, just north end of Seattle. And every once in a while, Colleen would get a wild hair and she'd run away, but in a day or two, she'd be back home. The final time that she ran away, she took more than her belongings. It was around Christmas time and she ended up taking Christmas gifts with her. Her father would file charges against her but this was in an effort to track his daughter down. Where all of that went to, I have no earthly idea. None. I have researched this up, down, left, right. I have no freaking clue. Because Colleen was alive for at least a year following this incident. We learned that she started selling herself for money. After a friend of hers ran into her a couple years later, and she was really kind of concerned with Colleen and the way she was choosing to provide for herself. Outwardly, Colleen was seemingly in love with her profession. She liked not only the attention that was coming from these men, but she liked some of the gifts that her regulars would bring her. She liked the dinner sometimes they would take her to. But in reality, she was a little naive about the entire situation. What she was doing was playing a very high-risk game. She was downplaying the risk to her friend. Oh, you know, no, not that bad. You know, I get attention. I get gifts. Yeah, I've got to sleep with them. But I'm doing great, right? You and I both know there's not a lot of money here. You're not. The services you are providing do not equal the money you receive. Let's just put it that way, in my opinion. So it's not like these, some of these girls are out there making $100,000 a year or something. They're not. 
they are making enough to pay for their hotel for one more night to grab a little bitty bite to eat and if lucky feed that drug problem they do have not all of them have a drug problem though so some of them were just doing it to get by and it was barely there barely enough colleen well she glammed the life up when she was speaking with her friend and her friend was concerned they decided to meet on christmas eve down at the greyhound bus depot in downtown seattle what was going to occur from there, I don't know. I don't know if her friend was going to attempt to help Colleen to further, to better her life. I'm not sure. Because Colleen never showed up. She was never seen alive again. Her father did file her as missing. And with the ongoing charges of theft, he was hoping it would pressure them to really find her. But like other sex workers, it was nearly two years later when her remains were found. We have, we have a victim who did manage to get away from Gary Ridgway. Her name was Rebecca Garde-Gaway, I think is how you say it probably butchered it. I apologize. At the time in 1982, it was around November, Rebecca was leaving her part-time job one evening and she was newly pregnant. So she was really dreading walking home and she thought about taking a cab, but the thought that it would cost her more than half of what she made that day just was unfair. So instead she stuck her thumb up and here comes the man in a maroon Dodge pickup. He stopped to pick her up and take her where she needed to go, and she was relieved. Well, when they were in the vehicle together, there, the prospect of a date came up. Rebecca, if she was a worker, she was not frequent on the strip. Let's just start there. Anyways, a the proposition of a date came up, and with her being pregnant, she really didn't want to partake in vaginal intercourse. Much like with Mary Meehan, she, you know, went back and was like, mm, no, how about I just give you a blowjob? So here we are again. History is repeating itself, and Rebecca agrees that she will give him oral in exchange for $20. She did this, this part really kind of made me chuckle and I don't know why it's not funny. So, you know, just no chalk it up to my anxiety or whatever. She asked him prior to solidifying the date if he was the Green River Killer. And so the man was like, no, let me, you know, he started, whips out his wallet and he's showing her things, but he strategically places his finger over his name when he shows her his ID card from Kentworth Motor Company. That ring a bell for anybody? No? Oh, okay. Gary, Gary works there. Also inside of that wallet, picture of Matthew. When you see a child... You can't think that a parent would do what he's fixing to do to another parent's child. You just, it doesn't register for most people. 
Gary takes her out to a designated area. And at first she believed she was just going to do the act in the vehicle. But he talked her into getting out because he has this thing with doing it outdoors. So Rebecca agrees and they get out of the vehicle and she kneels down in front of him and she begins her task. But much like the last encounter of Oral, he couldn't come to attention. He screamed, claiming Rebecca bit him on the penis and knocked her to the ground, pushed her face into the dirt, and wrapped his arm around her neck. Well, the two struggled, and, ate, and Rebecca was able to wiggle free from the chokehold, and she took off running. But thanks to the fact that his shorts were still down around his ankles, he was not able to chase her. And she managed to get away. Gary pulled his pants up and got the hell out of there before the woman could get the police out here. Rebecca made it to a trailer that was nearby and she told the people inside that she'd just been attacked. And by her appearance, her story was true. She, you know, had mud and dirt and scrapes and bruises on her face. Her clothes were torn and she's trembling. She tells them... He's going to kill her if given the chance, and that's exactly what he was going to do. However, Rebecca's will to survive was more. It would take her about a year and a month, year and two months, before she would report this attack. Victim number 16. Jane Doe, B-16 which stands for Bone 16. She's later identified as Sandra Denise Major, an African-American woman in either the latter part of her 19th year or newly 20 years old when she was taken from the streets and robbed of her life. The date of disappearance is unknown. Her death is listed as October. As December 24th, 1982, she would be a part of another one of his cluster killings. And that's all we know of Sandra Major. Victim number 17 is Jane Doe B10. Her name's Wendy Stevens. She would become the Green River Killer's youngest victim. She was just 14 years old when she met the man that would steal her life. Gary would later talk about Wendy in interviews that were part of the plea deal, but claimed the victim was in her 20s. Well, in reality, she wasn't even 15 years old yet. It's not known if Wendy had attempted to set up a date with Gary or the circumstances surrounding her death. In interviews, the one thing Gary could remember about Bones 10 or Wendy is that he had to make sure she was dead because he had attempted to kill another woman, but she managed to get away. So I would put her date of disappearance close to Rebecca Gway's um, attempted murder. If I was putting the timeline in correct order. But I don't know because they don't know. As a matter of fact, if you are a true nerd, you have heard the name Wendy Stevens recently. She made headlines when she was identified early in 2021. 
Gary would have an additional count of murder added to his charges and he would plead guilty where he was handed down another life sentence. But when you've already carrying 49 sentences of life, what is another one? Nothing. Now, during all of this, as we have victims missing, where I mean, we are rapid secession. He's back into another cluster killing. We have Giselle Lavorne's body that was identified on September 20th of 1982. That is when we learn of the second victim from the first cluster killing. Some of the other victims were found relatively close to their disappearance date. For whatever reason, though, Giselle took a little bit longer to find. The thing about finding Giselle in the wooded area close to South 200th Street and 18th Avenue South, she was underneath an apple tree. But the way her body was found there, she was found with no clothing her hips were flexed wide and her knees were bent approximately 90 degrees. It was an odd posing of the body. And I think there's a lot of questions as to why she was posed in that way. We know with Chapman and Hines, they had triangular rocks inserted into their vaginas with Giselle we're finding her in this manner which brings into question if these victims if there's something that if there's more meaning behind the way he's posing these victims with Giselle there's really not um she would be the first victim he would be able to come back to and have more fun with, I guess is what you, you know, I know, <laughs> I know I say, I choose words to say and choose words to don't. <clears throat> and it's not uncomfortable with being sex, but it's about un making you uncomfortable. Some people just don't want to hear it. So, Giselle was the first victim that we know that he was able to go back to and have entertainment with. Uh, she was not placed in the river, but she was placed close to the river under a tree. Her hips were flexed. He had moved her from the original location where she had been murdered and placed her in a more secluded area so that he could come back. And he did come back at least one time to have sexual intercourse with the body um, and I think after that she became too she, she was too late into the decomposing that Gary wasn't comfortable with revisiting her so there wasn't this must position them in a certain way he was much like Bundy he wanted them in secluded areas and that way he could revisit them now well, you ask the question, well, he dumped how many in the river? He did, and there was no ability to go back. However, I think with the way that these cluster killings happened, he would get this desire to have sex and kill girls. And he would go through and to the point where he thought, I'm pushing my luck. 
And then with Giselle, if I position, if I dump her in a space, I can come back. Maybe that will allow me a little bit more time in between killings, right? That's the theory. But what he doesn't take into account is once a person dies, their body starts to decompose rapidly, especially when exposed to the elements of humidity, which would have been high, especially right there around the embankment of the Green River and in that shaded wooded area, which, you know, slowed down the absorption of the humidity in the air. So she decomposed faster than he anticipated. Had the area been cold with the winter, he may have had a little bit more time with her body, but he's still learning. He's still defining who he is and how he kills. So with Giselle, we we weren't seeing something ritualistic. We were seeing trial and error. The Green River murders were debuted daily on the front page, whether they were the headline front and center or if they were a smidge further down the page. The people of Seattle were wanting to know what the police were doing to catch the man running around killing women. Some speculated that if you weren't working the strip, then you're probably safe. Others waited for the other shoe to drop and women, no matter their profession, to start going missing. The task force was taking in reports of possible suspects and the FBI had their newly behavioral unit analyzing the data coming in from the investigations. Anything that could be even minimally important to the case was being bagged and tacked, but they were no closer to figuring out who committed these murders than they were when Wendy Cofield's body showed up in the city's river. Gary would go out and hunt and hunt to curb his appetite. He would kill in clusters and then the citizens of Seattle would find the bodies and just when investigators were at the end of their ropes, more bodies would be discovered and even more women would be reported missing. Their city was under attack from one of their own. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we descend deeper into the larger than life case. Join me next week as we continue on with even more victims and the discovery of some reported missing women that had yet to be found. Gary's appetite was far bigger than any one person could imagine. As always, I leave you with one last line. The mind, once stretched by a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions. 
Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>